your host, Nick Jacomis, and today I'm speaking with Dr. Alex Kwan. Alex is an applied physicist turned neuroscientist who runs a research lab at Yale University, where his group studies how neuropsychiatric drugs such as psilocybin and ketamine affect neural circuits in the brains of mice. Alex's lab uses advanced optical imaging techniques to actually watch what happens to neurons in the brain in response to drugs like psilocybin and ketamine to understand how these drugs actually affect plasticity and the structure and function of neurons. The goal of his research is to understand the basic mechanisms for how these drugs work in the brain so that we can better understand their therapeutic potential for treating psychiatric disorders like depression. Alex and I discussed how his lab actually conducts this research, what they have discovered so far, and we actually looked at some real data, images, and movies of neurons in the brain of mice that Alex has collected in his lab. And we described that in the audio version, but you can actually see it for yourself on YouTube, which is pretty cool. As always, if you enjoy the content of this podcast, please like, share, and subscribe. Today's show is brought to you in part by Dosist an all-natural cannabis company specializing in dose-controlled cannabis products made with plant-based ingredients. To learn more about Dosist, their products, and where they are available, please visit their website through the link in the episode description. Hey everyone, I want to take just a minute to tell you about an app I am partnering with called Readwise. Readwise is an app that organizes and helps you get the most out of your digital highlights. I use it to organize all the highlights I make in my digital books on my Kindle. And so if you're like me and you make a lot of highlights and you like to revisit them often to refresh your memory, Readwise is the perfect app. You can also take photos of any physical books you've highlighted and upload those. It also has cool features that allow you to share your favorite highlights and quotes from books on social media, and it syncs with note-taking apps like like Evernote, Notion, and Roam. You can tag, search, and organize your notes and highlights on Readwise, and it helps you connect ideas in new ways and retain more of what you read. So if you click the link in the episode description, you can get Readwise for free for two months when you sign up for their annual plan. That plan is only $7.99 per month, and it's a relatively new app, so they're adding new features often. And if you sign up for the annual plan today, you can lock in that price, which will stay at $7.99 even if the price increases in the future. Future as they add more. So if you do a lot of highlighting and note-taking and you want a good way to organize all that information, check out the link in the episode description. And with that, here's my conversation with Dr. Alex Kwan. Alex Kwan, thank you for joining me. Thank you for having me. Can you start off by just telling people a little bit about who you are, what you do, and what your academic background is? Sure. Uh, so I'm uh, right now an associate professor in the Department of Psychiatry at Yale University. Uh, my lab, uh, we focuses on, one of the interests that we do is we focus on drug action, and we're very interested in, uh, you know, what are some of the effects of different kinds of drugs on the brain. Uh, we study these in mice. Um, so if you go back to my background, uh, you know, I actually have a PhD in applied physics, and then I did a postdoc in neuroscience uh, before I came to Yale. So that, that's a brief background. Interesting. So you're studying the effects of drugs on the brain in mice. I was hoping at the beginning, if you could describe for people the difference between an in vitro study and an in vivo study in an animal model, which is what your lab does and a human clinical trial. So, so what are those different types of studies and what are the major 
strengths and weaknesses of each general type of study. Right. So an in vitro study would describe a uh, experiment that is done outside of an animal. So these are typically uh, culture neuron on a dish, for example, that you would keep in an incubator. So these are cells that you would grow. Uh, again, you take out, take it out from the animal and you grow it in a in a in a control environment. Uh, and then that's in contrast to in vivo experiment where these are also typically animal study or could be human study. Uh, but now you're studying in an intact animal that's actually living, is breathing, uh, is doing its own thing. Uh, so obviously in vivo experiment has certain advantages, namely being that the animal is functioning. So it's not in this kind of detached environment. You're actually studying your question in the proper context, again, in a living animal with the whole organism, you know, with the brain and the organ and everything that's uh, uh, in, a, in a kind of a intact system. And then you can compare it to a clinical trial. So what I do, I would consider preclinical study because we only uh, study the actions of drugs in animals, uh, whereas clinical trials are typically done in humans and they focus on studying efficacy of drugs uh, against certain diseases or looking at the safety of these drugs and so forth. And so for the studies that you're doing, so these are in vivo mouse studies. So you're studying awake living animals, in this case, mice. And by studying laboratory animals, you can actually dig deeper than what can be done in a human study because you can use more invasive techniques. And one of the things that's really interesting that I think a lot of people don't even realize can be done, but it's done routinely in science labs, is you can literally look inside of the brain of a mouse and watch neurons. Can you explain for people how that's actually done in the lab using microscopy? Yeah, I sure can. I mean, that is one of the primary tools we use in the lab uh, using these optical imaging methods to look at the brain. Uh, in fact, it was uh, the, the technique that we use is a method called two-photon microscopy. And that was actually uh, discovered or first used in my PhD lab when I was at Cornell University. Uh, so my advisor at that time, who sadly passed away last year, um, Watt Webb, he and a couple other people uh, invented this microscopy techniques. Uh, so how it works is that uh, for the mouse, at least, you would uh, drill a small hole in their, in, on the skull so you can access the brain. And then you replace that with a glass window. And then uh, in terms of the microscope size, we have a fairly fancy, actually expensive, uh, so-called femtosecond laser, uh, which, and then we have some equipment to scan this laser into the brain. Um, and then through uh, also fluorescence imaging, we can then uh, try to start visualizing uh, the morphology of some of these brain cells, uh, as well as also uh, there are now different sensors that you can use in conjunction with these imaging methods to look at different biochemical signals within the brain cells. So you literally put a window into the skull of a mouse and then literally point a microscope into that window so that you can see neurons. Can you talk a little bit more about how you can actually see the neurons? What allows them to be visualized? Yeah, so I should explain a bit more about the fluorescence. So the, the fact that we can see the neuron is because the neurons typically contain either fluorescent dyes or fluorescent protein. Uh, so how fluorescent works is, is, is that a, a fluorescent molecule is a molecule in which when you, if you shine light on it, then it excites an electron to an excited state. And then when it comes down, it emits a photon. 
so by virtue of this light that is released, you can actually detect it. So how it works in a neuroscience uh, lab and is pretty common now in the, these days, you can use different genetic methods to express proteins that are fluorescent into the brain cells. Uh, so in our study, for example, we have animals that contain neurons that have these fluorescent proteins. Uh, and then this allows us to basically visualize it because actually because the brain endogenously have very little fluorescence. So anything that you can see through fluorescence, then you know is something that you actually label. Interesting. So you can engineer, you can create mice that have brain cells inside of their skull that essentially glow in the dark, that can be made to look bright so that you can see them with the microscope. And you can literally look inside the brain of a mouse and see individual neurons. Before we get to some of the, um, some of the information we're going to talk about, I just want to alert listeners on the audio podcast. So we will be showing a few interesting movies and images of some of the things that you're hearing about right now. We will explain those verbally so that people can imagine what they look like. But on the video version of YouTube, you will actually get to see what some of the stuff looks like. And it's pretty cool. But before we get to that, I want to talk about one of the drugs you've been studying in mice. And that's psilocybin, the active ingredient in magic mushrooms. So one of the, one of the things that's interesting about psilocybin is it's the Schedule One controlled substance. It's been used illicitly and recreationally for many, many years. But recent, recently, it's received a breakthrough therapy designation by the FDA based on some results in human trials with respect to its antidepressant effects that it appears to have. And one of the things that people may have seen that I want to ask you about is you often hear or you'll see a image that seems to indicate that when you give psilocybin to a human, the functional connectivity of the brain changes and different parts of the brain connect to each other, so to speak, that don't normally talk to each other. And what's interesting about those studies is they're done in humans and we know they have clinical relevance, but what you can't understand from those studies is what's actually going on at the level of individual neurons and circuits in the brain. And so can you just start talking a little bit about what you know there from your research in terms of what psilocybin is doing to neurons and circuits inside the brain? Yeah, so I think I can actually visualize in my mind exactly which uh, figure you're talking about. Uh, this is that really classic, I think, from uh, Robin Carhart Harris, uh, where they did uh, human neuroimaging and show that they have this graph, right, where the graph gets more connected. Uh, so that level of study is definitely very fascinating and show how the human brain might change in response to psilocybin. Uh, animal studies, like the ones that we do, give her, I think, different view. Uh, one thing is that you alluded to it a number of times already, it's a, it's a, it's a precision that we can look at them in animals. When, uh, when you do neuroimaging in human, typically uh, the voxel, which is the volume that you can image, like how, what is the spatial resolution, how fine you can image, uh, is still very limited. So each, each of these voxels would contain, for example, a million cells hmm. at least. Uh, so it's a fairly coarse way to uh, understand brain cells and their function and connectivity. Uh, by contrast, in animals uh, with the method that I talked about, uh, these laser scanning microscopy, you can go down to single neurons. So we can label them with fluorescent protein as we talked about. Uh, and then when I measure connection between neurons, we're talking about connection between individual brain cells. So there's a lot of power in that because uh, if you can look at individual, individual cells and you can start talking about uh, you know, different cell types because you can classify neurons into different types. 
you can talk about whether these connections are in certain brain areas or certain layers of the brains. You can get fairly specifics in terms of what the drug does. And I think that will speak a lot to, uh, in terms of, yeah, what is the mechanism and what, what, the, what the drug do to the brain circuitry. I see. So I'm going to try and create an analogy on the spot. So when you, when you see an image of a human brain from an fMRI scan, every single pixel of that image might contain a million neurons within one pixel. So all of that information has been blurred together. Maybe it would be like, you know, if you were flying in an airplane or something and you pointed a camera down at the earth and one pixel of your image contained like a football stadium filled with many people. But the techniques you're using are sort of like zooming in so that you can take images of all of the individual people in that stadium. Is that reasonably accurate? No, I think that's a, that's a good analogy. Yeah. And then the idea is, of course, then if you can zoom into individual people, again, following your analogy, then you know, we know that they're unique and they might respond differently. So um, that's why I think there's value in doing these kinds of really precise measurements. Mm -hmm. Before we get into some of the imaging experiments and things going on in the brain, what, what happens when you give psilocybin to a mouse? Is it akin to what happens when you give it to a human? What, like behaviorally, how do they respond and how do you actually administer it to a mouse? Uh, so definitely it's not like a human. Uh, I mean, a mouse, a mouse is not a small and tiny human. <laughs> They're a different animal. Uh, so, well, first of all, to administer psilocybin to animal, uh, we actually do a so-called IP injection. So we uh, inject it into the abdominal space of the mouse. Uh, that's already quite different, right? In terms of the route of administration, which in human would be typically oral or uh, intravenous. Uh, and the reason for this is uh, in, in the mouse, this is you know, just a way to deliver a large load of a particular compound. Uh, and then secondly, the behavioral consequences of uh, psilocybin administration is also distinct from the mouse. So it's really obviously very hard to ask the mouse or assay whether they will have any kind of subjective psychological experience. And, uh, and definitely one do not wanna speculate whether they would have any kind of mystical like experience. Uh, and instead, a very classic assay that people do in the mouse and the observation that they see is that when you give drugs like psilocybin or other classical psychedelics uh, that have serotonergic action, the drug will, uh, the, the mouse will twitch their head. Um, so it's a, it's a very characteristic head movement at about 90 hertz. So 90 times a second, they will move their head. Um, this is a very stereotypical motor response uh, that all kind of rat and mice do when they receive psychedelic compound. And there was a very interesting study just came out, I think last year from Adam uh, Alberstadt lab from San, San Diego, where they showed that this kind of head twitch response actually correlate fairly well with the potency of the drugs in humans. So there is some correlation between how much uh, these kinds of drugs can elicit uh, a head twitch in mice versus how potent it is for uh, inducing the psychological experiences in humans. I see, so the, the drugs are psychedelics, at least like psilocybin, are clearly inducing some kind of behavioral response in the animal. So something is clearly happening. As we're gonna see, there's also something clearly happening at the cellular level. Has anyone done any perceptual studies in mice to show that they have perceptual distortions? I think that's a fascinating question. And I think a lot more can be done 
So I don't know the full history of that. I know there is some recent study uh, from Chris Neal's lab in Oregon. Uh, Chris is a visual neuroscientist, uh, much like myself, come from a very basic neuroscience background. And he, he has a very interesting paper looking at the effect of DOI on cortical neuroactivity, so the brain activity in the visual cortex of a mouse. Um, but yeah, I don't know as much. I mean, we talked about it in a lab. It would be very fun to do some visual perceptual tasks with mice and see how some of these drugs may or may not affect their um, behavior. Mm -hmm. Interesting. So what does psilocybin actually do to the brain in terms of its mechanism of action? So as a drug, what kind of drug is it and what sort of receptors in the brain are being affected? So similar, well, some in some respects, similar to human, right? Psilocybin, when it's administered a drug, it also get dephosphorylated and metabolized into psilocin. And then psilocin, when it enters the brain, is a uh, agonist of different subtypes of serotonin receptors. So it basically binds to certain membrane proteins in the brain. Uh, and then, uh, some of these proteins, some of these receptors are known to uh, be involved in the behavioral effect. For example, the ones I just talked about, the head twitch response that people have seen in the mouse is probably mediated by a subtype of the receptor called 5-HT2A receptors. Um, but beyond that, yeah, there's just actually not that much is known. <laughs> so they bind to the receptors in the brain and they definitely activate certain other kind of molecular signaling. Uh, but even in terms of some of the basic question, like what kind of cell type do they act on? Mm -hmm. What brain areas do they act on? There's not as much as one would hope that we know. Um, some of it is because the drugs just, uh, again, have been heavily regulated. So there is a basically 20, 30 year gap where neuroscience has advanced, but uh, we were not able to study these drugs meanwhile. And, uh, you know, a lot of what we know is still from the 60s and 70s. Hmm. So this 2A serotonin receptor, that is responsible for this behavioral head twitch effect you see in the mouse. And that's also the same receptor that is responsible for the hallucinatory effects in humans, correct? Correct, yeah. So there are a number of studies uh, pretty convincingly. Either you can give the mouse or human uh, a, uh, a, another drug that would block the action of the 5-HT2A receptor. And if you do that, then, and then following you uh, administer psilocybin, and we did that ourselves too, then you can block these behavioral effects in human and mice. Uh, there's also other ways to, to, um, to do that. For example, you can do what's called PET scan. So you look at the uh, uh, binding potential of these receptors, and you can also show that the number of the 2A receptors and the binding of it due to the drug is also correlate with some of these psychological experiences in humans. So there's pretty good evidence that the 2A receptor is involved in these behaviors. Interesting. So it's binding to this receptor, but it's also binding to a variety of other receptors. So it's it's not a very specific drug in that sense. That's correct. Yeah, it binds to a variety of serotonin receptors with different kinds of affinity. Um, probably, yeah, yeah. Uh -huh. And so um, one of the one of the things you see in humans um, apparently is this potential antidepressant effect, which can actually outlast the administration of the drug. And that's very interesting. Can you describe for people what you see in laboratory rodents in terms of any signs of antidepressant or anti-anxiety effects of psilocybin? Yeah. So to study depressive-like behavior in rodents, we use a paradigm that uh, involves stress uh, because uh, depression is also a human condition and it's 
to, to do that, we need a mouse model uh, to, to study. Uh, and then how we do it, in at least in my lab, is we have an assay called learn helplessness. So in this assay, what we do is we expose the animal to a series of foot shock. So they would go into this box and then the foot would get shocked and the shock comes in unpredictable time and the animals also cannot control it. So these kinds of very unpredictable and uncontrollable um, aversive stimulus is known to induce a tremendous amount of stress on the animal. So we subject the animal to these um, situation for two days and then uh, subsequently, uh, then they will display a kind of distress-induced phenotype where uh, uh, they will start to learn to not escape. So what it means is like initially we, we shock them, but later on we, when we test them, they actually have the opportunity to escape if they will. They can actually now search for a way to escape, but uh, they will actually, uh, after subjecting them to these uncontrollable stress, they will exhibit what's called uh, uh, learn helplessness. So they learn to be kind of despair and then uh, uh, they will no longer uh, want to escape. So this is a, again, a classic uh, paradigm in the mouse. And what we show though, is if you give psilocybin to the mouse and we compare it to either saline, which is a control or with ketamine, uh, we show that if you give administer psilocybin to the mouse, they actually escape a little bit more. So suggesting that they're less affected by the effect of that stress. So it's pretty far from depression, right? But it's, you mm -hmm. know, what we can do in mice. Mm -hmm. So the idea yeah. is a normal, psychologically healthy mouse, if you want to talk about it that way, will experience something like a mild foot shock, something it doesn't like, and it will try to get away from it, as you would imagine it naturally would. But if you keep doing that in this uncontrolled manner, eventually that persistent stress will cause the animal to give up and display what's called learned helplessness, which just means it stops trying to get away. But if you give psilocybin, it sort of keeps fighting longer. That's very correct. Yeah, yeah. And so, what's what's the purpose of comparing it to ketamine? Yeah. So when we do this experiment, we wanted to both have a negative and a positive control. Uh, negative control being saline, which is just a uh, salt solution that doesn't contain any drugs in it. So we want to make sure that that injection alone does not do anything, which it did not. Uh, and we also wanted a positive control, which is something that we know that should work. Uh, so in this case, we actually tested ketamine. So subanesthetic ketamine is uh, also known to have these uh, antidepressive effects in humans and also in, in rodents. So in this case, we see uh, also a uh, increased uh, tendency for the animal to escape to so similar direction as a psilocybin, but actually psilocybin was even a little bit, have a, a little bit even stronger effect than ketamine. Yeah, I wanted to talk about the contrast and the similarities between ketamine and psilocybin. So on the one hand, you've just told us that there is a kind of convergence in their effects. Um, the details are presumably different, but they seem to have these antidepressant-like effects, both in rodent models, like what you work with, and in humans. And yet the drugs are very different. So can you describe what we are maybe starting to understand there, how different are ketamine and psilocybin as drugs? And how could two very different drugs acting in different ways actually give you similar effects? That, that's definitely an ongoing research question that is of interest to, of interest to a lot of people. Uh, if we can find some more general principle for how some of these drugs might exert its 
the rapid and long-lasting antidepressive properties, that would be um, that would be incredible. Uh, so in terms of what we know about these drugs, uh, molecularly they're very different, right? So ketamine uh, is a antagonist, so it blocks a, a receptor called the NMDA receptor. And as we talked about, serotonin has a completely different target, and they target mostly the serotonin receptor subtypes. So we already know out from uh, from the from the get go that they just target different uh, uh, places in the brain. Uh, we uh, in our lab, at least, we have a we have a hypothesis where we suspect that even though they target at a molecular level different uh, receptors, uh, maybe on the systems level at least, in terms of again brain circuits and brain regions, maybe they, there's more similarity to these drugs. Um, and then in terms of actually how they change uh, the excitability of some of the dens, right? So in terms of how they affect the physiology of the brain cells. So again, well, I guess to summarize a little bit, these drugs are definitely targeted at the molecular level, at the small scale, definitely have key differences, but maybe on the system level and the whole brain level, maybe they do something more similar. Hmm. And can you talk a little bit about the time course of some of these antidepressant-like effects? So you mentioned... Um, rapid antidepressants. And we know in humans that you have this very rapid, remarkably rapid effect where within hours, I think, or even less than an hour, you can get people who are depressed. They're not responding to any other drug. And yet they are responding very quickly to ketamine. Psilocybin, I believe has a longer half-life and lasts longer, but can you talk a little bit about the onset and the duration of the effects that, that we've been seeing between ketamine and psilocybin? Uh, so ketamine, the time course is more well-established. Uh, there's more, many more clinical trials on it. And uh, just a plug, I mean, it's, it's actually initially discovered as antidepressant in my department right now, in the Department of Psychiatry at Yale by my current department chair, John Crystal. That was in the uh, 1990s. Uh, so even that back then, if you look at the original paper, they already show you can start to see the antidepressant effect at about the four-hour time point in humans. And um, that's, uh, and then it lasts for, you can see it lasts for um, about a week or so in that initial study. Hmm. Subsequent follow-up to that, uh, I mean, shows similar time course. I mean, in terms of the duration, maybe now like between one or two weeks or so. Uh, and that's, that's a single dose, right? That's a single sub-anesthetic dose, yeah, one IV infusion. And you can also compare it to the acute effects. So ketamine also have acute psychotomimetic, this uh, dissociative effect, and that has definitely wear off before the antidepressant effect kicks in. So that those effects last for about two hours. So you have mm. this acute effect that's dissociative and then the antidepressant effect kicks in. For psilocybin, uh, again, there's less study on it, uh, fewer uh, human subjects being tested in these clinical trials. Uh, but for, well, from what I understand, they also see, uh, and also I should, I should mention for ketamine, a, a big distinction is that ketamine is, a, is an infusion, but psilocybin is often done as an assisted psychotherapy. Mm -hmm. um, but uh, I think some of the measures, early measures, uh, some of the earliest time points, uh, let's say within a day, they already see some of these changes um, or a few days, they see some of these changes in behavior. And I think, I believe, you know, some of the studies from Johns Hopkins and also um, from uh, Imperial College shows that you can see them as, as long as maybe even several months later, which is quite remarkable and much longer than what has been shown for ketamine. Mm -hmm. Yeah, so that's one of the interesting things about psilocybin and these other drugs is 
you administer them to humans and you have these effects that last for weeks or months, apparently. And that's long after the drug will be out of the person's system. And so it implies that there must be something going on in the brain, you would think, that outlasts the drug. And that's where you start thinking about plasticity and some of the experiments that your lab has done. So can you talk a little bit about what you've seen so far in terms of psilocybin's effect on neuroplasticity? And perhaps just start off by telling people, you know, what is plasticity and what are some of the key parts of a neuron that you look at when you're thinking about plasticity? So plasticity uh, basically referred to changes in the brain. Uh, some of these changes, some of these plasticity could be short term. So they could be on the order of seconds or minutes. Uh, one example, uh, like a very kind of short term plasticity would be uh, like adaptation. If you keep receiving a stimulus, eventually you stop to kind of respond to it. Some of these plasticity could also be very long term. Uh, so I, I think a good example would be, for example, some other substance of abuse. Uh, if you if you consume these uh, 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 kind of drugs, right, you can develop, for example, dependencies and things like that. They also reflect a plasticity in the brain. Uh, so at the cellular level, uh, one can also study plasticity by looking at changes in the structure and function of the neurons. Uh, in my lab, particularly, we're interested in plasticity in the dendritic compartment. So the dendrite of a neuron is a part of the, of, of the brain cell that receives synaptic input. So this is places where it receives information from other neurons. Uh, so each one neuron receives inputs from uh, around maybe on the order of thousands of other neurons. And the dendrite is where it receives it and then also integrate and process these inputs. And then eventually then uh, that integration lead to the cell to fire its output. Uh, so we study plasticity in dendrite and we think it's very, and basically it's very important for how neuron communicate and how neuron receive this information. I see. So there's short and long-term versions of plasticity, something like adaptation or short-term plasticity might be like when I put my shirt on in the morning after a couple of seconds, I don't really notice the shirt anymore because it's persistently sitting on my skin and my nervous system adapts to it. I don't need to worry about it anymore. And then long-term plasticity would be some sort of physical and or functional change that would allow you to say, form a new memory that you hold on to for weeks or months. Yeah. So I think this could be a good spot to sort of reiterate some of what you just said and show people some of the results from your lab. So we're going to describe all this verbally, but I will do a screen share to share some video and image content from Alex's lab. Uh, that'll be on the YouTube version. So let me try this right now. Can you see that on your screen, Alex? Yeah, I can see it. So starting at the behavioral level, this was the head twitch response that I think you were talking about. I'm going to hit play here. And can you just sort of describe for people what's actually happening in this video? Yeah. So here in this video, we have two mice uh, in my lab. Uh, the mouse is in a small rectangular box. It's an arena. Uh, and what you're seeing is that the left mouse have received one milligram per kilogram dose of psilocybin. And the mouse on the right has received basically a saline solution, just a salt solution with no drug in it. And you can see that um, when we record these mouse movement, 
with an overhead camera, uh, which is, and in this case, it's actually a very high-speed camera. Again, the head twitch occur very uh, rapidly. You can see that the mouse on the left that have received psilocybin uh, showed this, again, head twitch response, which is this rapid movement of the head going kind of left and right and left and right. And they do it for about, I mean, uh, on order like five to 10 cycle. Um, this is actually, again, a very well-known behavior. It's known even in the 60s. I don't know actually how they used to do it because at that time they don't have these high-speed camera. I don't know how they notice it, <laughs> but in the lab now uh, we, can, uh, we, 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 can, we can record it uh, and, and pretty precisely. I see. So it, it almost reminds me of like when a, when a dog or something gets out of the water and they kind of shake the water off. So they have this behavioral response and it's a pretty good correlate of the potency of a psychedelic as we would think about it in a human. That's correct. Yeah. So again, uh, Adam Halberstadt's lab have compared, I think a panel of about 30 of these different hallucinogenic compounds. And he showed that if you make a plot of, uh, you know, how strong this drug has is in human in terms of the effective dose. And then what is the effective dose in mouse? You can see a very uh, strong relationship. Hmm. So now we're moving on to this second image. Can you start to unpack this a little bit? And I want us to describe for the next few images, basically just the parts of the neuron that we look at in the brain when you're studying plasticity. So what are we actually seeing here? So this is a section of the mouse's brain. Uh, this is called like a coronal section, which is a, it's a particular angle of the cut of the brain. So what we do here is we sacrifice the animal, we take the brain out, and then we uh, put it in fixative. Um, and then afterward, we can now we bring it to a fluorescent microscope to image it. And this is not a normal mouse, this is a transgenic mouse. So this mouse uh, is uh, engineered to have a fluorescent protein already expressing in some of its brain cells. So that's what you are seeing in green. Uh, you can see uh, here, this is uh, the frontal cortex of the mouse, uh, which is where we do most of our studies. And what you can see is you can see the small green circles and those green circles are the cell bodies. Uh, and you can see uh, also lines coming out of the circles and sometimes the lines don't connect to the circle. But those, 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 those lines, those fairly straight lines that radiate out from the circles, those are the dendrites of the cell body. So that's exactly where the, some of the synaptic input would come in for the neurons. I see. So we're literally, for those listening, we're looking at a still image and you can see these bright spots and these bright lines on the image. And it, it looks like the glow in the dark color almost. And that's coming from these neurons in this mouse brain that have been specifically engineered to fluoresce, to emit light so that they can literally see them. So you see these blobs in a certain part of this section. Those are the cell bodies of the neurons. And these lines are the branches, the dendrites you were talking about, Alex. And those you said that they're sort of reaching up and they're probably listening or connected to thousands of other neurons. That's correct. Yeah. And I mean, and also another thing to notice is this, this mouse line, it only labels a specific kind of brain cell. So those brain cells that are laying deeper in the uh, frontal cortex of the animal or in the cortex of the animal. Mm -hmm. um, so that's why you, you see this kind of beautiful organization, again, of these deep laying cell bodies that with dendrites that radiate upwards onto the uh, more superficial areas of the brain. Yeah. And, and for those listening, these images are, they're actually very pleasant to look at. If you had no idea what you were looking at, you might just think it was an interesting photograph or, or piece of art, um, but it's actually the brain of a mouse, which is pretty cool. 
So this is a still a fairly zoomed out image compared to some of the experiments you do. And this is also a slice from a mouse that is no longer living. But of course, you have this remarkable ability to use two photon microscopes to actually look inside the brain of a living mouse. And I believe we have a short video of what that starts to look like. So I'm going to play this a few times. And can you just describe what we're seeing here? Yeah. So, uh, you know, just like what you said, Nick, this is the um, now going to a live mouse. Uh, so when we do these imaging, actually, for this mouse, the mouse is anesthetized. Um, but uh, it has this glass window on its head, and we're using the this two-photon laser scanning microscope to now uh, imaging these same uh, you know fluorescently labeled neurons, um, but now in the live mouse. So what you're seeing in this video is that uh, we're taking an image, uh, and then uh, we uh, and then we take another image that's a little bit deeper, about two micron deeper, and then you go another uh, a segment deeper, and then you go another deeper. So this movie basically shows you as you go into the brain how that dendritic branching changes, uh, and you can see the organization of that that those kind of dendritic branches. Uh, I mean, one of the things to note is that you know we're still kind of on the top of the brain, right? So this imaging is done from the surface. That's why you don't actually see the cell body. What you see is just the the dendrite that come out of the cell body. The cell body is too deep to see here. Hmm. Yeah. So so this is also a remarkable image. We're looking at it's pretty much a black and white image, but the light spots are the insides of these branches of the neurons called dendrites that are lit up. And, and they really do almost look like tree branches or something. Can you comment on some of the finer morphology here? So what I'm seeing is I'm seeing a series of line segments. Those are the dendrites, but it looks like each of these dendrites has a bunch of little bumps or blobs sticking off of it. So what are we actually seeing there? Right. So as I mentioned, a dendrite uh, probably contact thousands of other neurons. So those little uh, knob uh, coming out of the dendrites are what's known as the dendritic spines. Uh, so dendritic spines, most of those dendritic spines are the site of connections uh, for this neuron. Uh, most of them, uh, the majority of them would contain an excitatory uh, synapse, which means that uh, another neuron uh, make a connection there and has a possibility of uh, exciting and depolarizing this neuron. Uh, some of those dendritic spines might also be immature dendritic spines, so they have to shape and may become a mature dendritic, uh, mature connection, uh, but they're not yet a functional connection. Um, but this is a, a kind of structurally how one could see uh, the again the connectivity of these neurons and what may be the sites of the connections. Hmm. So. How do you guys look at dendrites and spines and use that as a way to quantify plasticity? Yeah, again, because these dendritic spines signifies uh, uh, the, connect, the, the possible sites of the connection, we uh, in the lab would measure the density of these uh, dendritic spines. So how many of them are present uh, for each of the dendritic branches we see, uh, which would then indicate the number of connections. Uh, the other thing that we would measure from these dendritic spines is we would also measure the size of them, which would be uh, the diameter of the uh, of these little knobs, uh, because it's also been uh, shown and it's quite well known that the size of these dendritic spines uh, relate to the strength of that connections. Uh, 
And so uh, if you have a larger head and that signify, typically signify a stronger uh, connection between these pairs of neurons. And if you have a smaller spine, then it, it's, it's a less mature uh, connection then it's probably a weaker connection. Interesting. So you can literally point the microscope inside of the brain of a mouse. You can make the neurons light up so that you can literally see them. And then you can go in and, and basically take images and movies that allow you to literally count the number of connections or potential connections between one neuron and other neurons. That's correct. Yeah. And one thing I should note is that one of the uh, the power of this technique is, uh, you know, with the glass window, the mouse can carry that around for a long time. So one good thing about this is you can go back day after day, and we indeed do that in the lab, and then go and find that same dendritic branch and the same set of dendritic spines, and then track them over time and see how the number and the size changes, and uh, which is basically how we can characterize plasticity and changes over time. I see. So I think we have one more image here, and. It is this one. So we've zoomed in even further now. And I believe this is an image that looks at plasticity before and after psilocybin administration. So can you uh, describe for people what we're actually seeing here? Yeah. So in the lab, we would basically the, um, uh, take the movie that you just saw, um, but maybe typically in a more magnified view so you can see the individual dendrite and dendrite spines more clearly. And then uh, what we would do is compare that movie uh, from day to day. And this is now basically, instead of showing you movie, I'm showing you a projection. So um, compressing that movie into a single image and then uh, compare it day by day. Uh, so this uh, figure here basically illustrate our main finding, which is uh, comparing imaging these dendrite and dendritic spine before administering psilocybin the day before. And then we image it again the day after. Um, and then also the subsequent day. And here we show you uh, day five as well as day 34, so about a month later. And what you can see is we can pretty reliably go back to that same dendritic segment and look for those same putative neural, neural connections. And what's interesting you see is that, uh, you know, some of the spines and most of those connections are pretty stable. And that's actually, uh, hopefully that would be true, right? You don't want your connection to constantly be changing. But what you see is also that uh, after the administration of psilocybin in this mouse, you can also see some addition of some new dendritic spine suggesting the growth of some new neuronal connections. So we've got these little blobs, these spines that represent connections to another neuron. Some of them are coming in, new spines, new synapses potentially are forming after psilocybin. We also have some leaving. What's the net effect of psilocybin in the mouse brain? Is it to create more connections or fewer connections? Yeah, so the net effect that we see is that psilocybin uh, promote the formation of new spines. So we have quantified these and look at uh, how the numbers changes and um, that's known as the formation rate and the elimination rate. So we call that a spine is forming if you can see one that uh, where there previously was no spine and then now you look at the next day and you start to see a spine, that's a spine that's formed. Uh, by contrast, if you have an existing spine and then you see that spine got removed, then that's the elimination rate. And what we have seen in our study is that psilocybin increases the amount of spine formation rate. So we just see more spines forming, whereas the elimination rate does not really change, leading to a net effect of uh, more dendritic spines or, again, uh, reflecting more neuronal connection in the mouse's head.
Mm-hmm. So I guess to summarize so far, you guys can literally see plasticity, see structural changes in the brain of a mouse using these advanced imaging techniques. So you can actually quantify plasticity. When you give these mice psilocybin, it changes the dendritic plasticity of at least certain neurons. The net effect is that the connections, the spines representing connections on the dendrites of these neurons become more numerous, but you do have some coming and some going away. Can you talk about what the relevance is there for something like depression and what the excitatory synapse hypothesis of depression is and how you start to think about what this actually might mean? Mm -hmm. So there's a uh, a lot of evidence suggesting that in depression uh, in humans, but also in stress models in rodents or so in mice and rats, that there is a loss of these neuronal connection or synapses in particular areas in the brain, specifically the uh, prefrontal cortex and also other places like the hippocampus. Uh, so that's been borne out by a number of neuroimaging study. Uh, and then uh, by contrast, it's also known that a number of antidepressants, so uh, the more conventional one, but as well as ketamine, has the ability to promote uh, the formation of uh, new neuronal connections in animals, at least, in mice. Uh, so here, what we think we're seeing is also that psilocybin seems to also have this capacity to promote neuroplasticity. Uh, and uh, the number, the enhanced number of neuronal connections might then serve to counteract some of the uh, some of the impairments that one might see, the synaptic impairments that one might see or one might associate with depression. Um, I should note that though, I mean, in this study, what we did is we didn't work with any stress mice. So we actually, in this case, work with mostly wild type mice or mouse mm. that are um, normal mice, if you will. I mean, none of these mice are truly normal. They're laboratory animals. So they're in a very, again, a very controlled environment uh, and they're inbred, um, but as normal as they could be, I mean, they're not stressed. Uh, so I wanna make that clear. Um, but nonetheless, in these control animals, what we see is that they form new spines, suggesting the possibility that, you know, if you if you translate it to the depression, it could counter some of those losses that you see with the disease. Mm-hmm. And what we were seeing in the previous image was that you were seeing changes in spine formation and elimination. You were seeing plasticity the day after psilocybin administration, but also a few days later and even a month later. And so this seems to parallel the observation in humans that you have these long lasting antidepressant effects. Is that the basic idea? Yeah, I think the time scale is the most interesting thing here. Uh, so I think generally, I think already a lot of people think that compounds like psychedelics may have plasticity inducing effect. So that's sort of almost a given, even though I don't know how strong the evidence is, <laughs> but most people seem to really think that. And there are also uh, very good study, very rigorous study uh, in in vitro system, uh, like culture neurons uh, from David Olson's lab, for example, that show that when you give them psychedelics, you can uh, also increase and promote plasticity. So here really the innovation that we provide is uh, we're doing this in vivo in a live animal. And if you do in live animal, then one question that we could ask, which is what we show here is to look at the time scale. Um, And that's also what struck us, which is how rapid the effect was in terms of we can see within one day. Mm-hmm. And then also how long lasting it was when we look at it one month later, we can still see some of the changes in that spine density. And you have to know that, you know, one month is actually fairly long in the mouse lifetime. I mean, yeah. they live, the mouse live for typically about two to three years. Um, so again, I think the, the that sustained increase in the spine density was quite striking. 
Interesting. I do want to talk a little bit about compartmentalization, both at the whole brain level, different brain regions, and at the cellular level in terms of different parts of the neurons and where different receptors are and things. But starting at the, the higher regional level, you mentioned previously that the images we were looking at tended to be from a particular region of the brain, a part of the prefrontal cortex. Can you talk a little bit more about that brain region and why you chose to focus on that? Mm -hmm. So the human have a, 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 a very a pronounced prefrontal cortex. We have a very big prefrontal cortex. Uh, there's a lot of evidence suggesting that that's the area for ex executive function and higher cognitive functions, uh, things like working memory, attention, but also mood regulation and so forth. Uh, and in mouse, the uh, most likely homolog is the medial frontal cortex, which is where we're studying. Uh, and it also have very similar kind of connection to certain parts of other brains like the striatum uh, and similar kind of cell type. Uh, so, uh, and it also kind of have a pretty strong reciprocal uh, direct and also indirect connection to hippocampus. Again, it's a, it's, a, it's a brain area that's very well positioned to uh, regulate mood and cognition that are relevant for depression. Mm -hmm. And very, in very, very general terms, what is this part of the brain generally known for? Like what happens when you break this part of the brain? Uh, I think classically, the most well-known is working memory deficit. So uh, Joaquin Fuster is the one that kind of talked about this where, uh, uh, yeah, if you, if you lesion this area in the monkey, they would basically fail to do uh, tasks that involve working memory. So this is working memory means you hold an item in your memory for a short time and then do something with it. So for example, if I ask you, uh, what is three plus two, then you have the whole three in your head and then two, and then do this operation. So it's thought that that is a perturbed if you get rid of the medial frontal cortex. Um, although I, I also mentioned, there's also other uh, feature with, I mean, that's a cognitive, cognitive part, but there's also a lot of mood regulating part um, that's been implicated in this area. So it's a mix of both. I see. And, and is it accurate to say that the, this part of the frontal cortex has often been associated with things like not just emotion regulation, but like executive control over behavior, like deciding not to do something that you might want to do, for example. Yes, definitely executive control over other, um, I think, lower order brain region that also control choices and decisions. Mm -hmm. Yeah, so I think in, in addition to working memory is also quite important for decision making. I think that's actually maybe have even more relevance for depression. I think one uh, really well uh, thought of kind of theory for depression is that uh, you, the, 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 the disorder might come about because of um, dysfunctional and uh, processing of um, rewards, right? If you get a positive feedback, you might not be able to adjust adequately, but whereas if you get a negative feedback, then you tend to reinforce them. So this kind of aberrant learning process could also really hurt both in terms of um, uh, cognitive, but also emotional uh, processing of this information. Mm -hmm. So this area is definitely important for processing these uh, rewards or lack of rewards. Um, so again, I think perturbation to the brain circuitry in this area could have these, um, could lead to a lot of behavioral problems. And so, you know, this area has been implicated in, in different aspects of cognition and mood that are relevant to depression. You also obviously are seeing these plasticity effects in this region. That's what we looked at before. Are there regional differences in how responsive neurons are to things like psilocybin? Does that have anything to do with regional 
localization of serotonin 2A receptors, for example? Yeah, that is an open question. And I think it's a very interesting one. Uh, we know a little bit about how the drug uh, is distributed in the brain once it's administered. Uh, there's some old study from 1960s when they radio label the drug and then see the distribution in the mouse brain or PET imaging in humans. But I think in terms, but that's just where the drugs are. It doesn't speak to how strongly the drug or what the drug is doing in the different region. That's actually a fairly open question, I think. Uh, so in the lab, actually, one of the uh, MD PhD student right now, he's trying to investigate this question. So he he he, he has a mouse where um, if the neuron is active, then it'll get labeled. And he's trying to look at uh, kind of in an unbiased manner, looking at the whole brain and see if you give a mouse this drug, then what happens? Because um, I, I do think that you know, frontal cortex, it makes sense that the drug acts there and maybe other places like hippocampus, but there mm -hmm. are pro probably a lot of other unexplored area where the drug could have a big effect, but it's just that a priori you might not know, and you really should map the whole brain to find out uh, what it does. Mm -hmm. But in general, you would not expect a drug to probably have a uniform effect throughout the brain because is it generally true that different receptors are expressed at different densities in different parts of the brain? Ah, I see we're getting at. Yeah, yeah, that is definitely true. So I think, but that's also a, a, a fascinating question that I think is active research. Like, so, because when you give drugs like psilocybin or even ketamine, the drug is applied systemically, which means that you either do IV injection or oral, and there's no a priori reason why it should act on one brain region over the other because it, the whole body has it, right? Mm -hmm. uh, so then why does it, that some drugs may have some selective action and why some why a drug do this versus the other? Yeah, I think I think part of the equation is yes, which brain area have some of these receptors? Uh, so regions that have more 2A receptors might be more susceptible or receptive, if you will, to psilocybin. Uh, another, I think, interesting uh, way to think about this, which I, I think is also important in my lab is trying to work on it, is we think that also the neuronal architecture, uh, kind of what kind of cell type is in the brain area and how they're connected might also dictate whether a drug act on a certain region. Um, but I think uh, those are open questions, right? Like in terms of what give the drug specificity on what brain region and cell types. Mm -hmm. So another question I have is, there, there's two parts to it, I think. So the effects that we were looking at where you, you were seeing spine formation and elimination in the dendrites of frontal cortex neurons in the mouse in response to psilocybin. Do you know anything about, the first question is, do you know anything about the underlying mechanism there? For example, does that effect depend on the serotonin 2A receptor, the so-called psychedelic receptor? And the related question would be more generally, can you speak about uh, the potential for creating or modifying psychedelics such that their plasticity-inducing effects are dissociated from their hallucinogenic effects? Yes. So that, I think that is a question that's interest to a lot of people. And in fact, uh, when we submitted this, this paper on this recent study, uh, we initially did not include the experiment to test this, but a reviewer asked it. So we ended up doing it, uh, which was, uh, yes, whether the 5-HT2A receptor that's responsible for these uh, behavioral effects, whether it also may be responsible for these plasticity changes that we see. So how we did that was uh, we used this other uh, uh, antagonist, this blocker called catanserin, which blocks the 5 h 2 receptor. We give it a, as a pretreatment. 
and then follow that up with psilocybin and see if the plasticity still occur. Uh, what we find in the mouse, at least, is that yes, uh, even with this cancer pretreatment, you can still see the uh, psilocybin-induced structural plasticity, the changes that we talked about in the dendritic spines. Although I have to caution the mouse again here, I, this is not a very definitive experiment because um, here that it shows the difference between a mouse and a human. The mouse is not a tiny human again. So the mouse have different metabolism for cancerin, and it turns out that cancerin is a much more effective blockers of to the 2A receptors in the brain um, than the mouse. So here, probably when we give the mouse catanserin, we're only blocking about 30% of the receptors. Mm. So there still remains some receptor that might still do the plasticity effect, uh, which I think complicated stories. Um, what I think need to be done, and I think that should be done, there should be a study, you know, either by my lab or some other lab <laughs> within a year or two is, use some of these genetically engineered animals where these receptors are just completely knocked out mm -hmm. and then kind of repeat these experiments and see if you can still see the dendritic plasticity. And you, you know the receptors are completely gone and you can see if the dendrites are still being modified by psilocybin. I see. So the idea would be you take a genetically engineered mouse that has no 5-HT2A receptors at all in its neurons, you give it psilocybin and you would expect A, that it would not have the head twitch response because that's a behavioral effect that apparently depends on that receptor, but it could, it may or may not, but it could have these other plasticity or other effects, which would imply that the drug is acting through some other receptor to do that. That's correct. Yeah. If we use a 2A knockout animal and then we repeat the experiment and we can still see that psilocybin has an effect on these dendritic spine, a turnover of them, then I think that would be fairly strong evidence, at least in, again in the mouse, that the psilocybin can act through other types of serotonin receptors or maybe even other mechanisms mm -hmm. um, to induce these plasticity. And that would be, I think, quite a uh, convincing evidence that may, maybe some of these beneficial action, which presumably will depend on the plasticity, could be dissociated from some of the psychological effects. Mm -hmm. What yeah. other receptors do we know that psilocybin binds to? Are there any? candidate receptors or interesting receptors in terms of psilocybin binding to them, but we also know that they could plausibly mediate some of these effects? So in the, uh, in the frontal cortex, uh, another prominent subtype of receptor that psilocybin binds to that also uh, is present in a lot of the neurons is the 5-HT1A receptor. Uh, what's interesting about 1A receptor is they tend to have the opposite effects on the neuron as opposed mm -hmm. to the 2A receptors. So what the two-way receptor does is if you if there's a, a, a either serotonin or maybe psilocybin, if it binds to it, then it tends to excite the neuron. It tends to depolarize and make the membrane potential go up. Uh, by contrast, the one-A receptor actually tends to inhibit the neuron, so it makes the membrane potential go down. So there's a bit of a yin and yang effect. Um, and then beyond, I think the 5-HT1A receptor, uh, there are also other kind of 5-HT two uh, receptor um, that might be relevant. Uh, that's not 2A. Um, yeah, I think there's quite a lot of possibilities. <laughs> there's also other uh, subtypes that are in other cell types uh, that we just don't know much about what they do. Mm -hmm. Can you speak a little bit about the specificity or the so-called dirtiness of a drug like this? So, so classically, right, in medicine, historically, there's been a focus to look on 
specific drugs, drugs that have a high amount of specificity for one receptor and they do one thing at that receptor. And they don't have so-called off-target effects because the idea is you know, you want a very specific drug receptor interaction, and you want to minimize the chance of other side effects that would come from a drug interacting with other receptor types. But some drugs, psilocybin included, don't just bind to one receptor, they bind to multiple or potentially a large number of receptors. Historically, those have been referred to as dirty drugs. Could you speak a little bit about the specificity of psilocybin and ketamine and what that means for things like dose-dependent effects and neurotoxicity? Yeah, so I think another word for that would be uh, like polypharmacology, where um, you, you're trying to have a method that actually target uh, different receptors, uh, be it you know a single drug that does that as a dirty drug, or you can even have multiple drugs administered at the same time to which then they have different targets. Um, and yes, yeah, traditionally, I think people try to you know hunt for that single receptor that might then be mechanistically responsible for the disease and try to be uh, trying to be exact in that case. Uh, but I think increasingly it's also shown that uh, those strategies tend to not work very well. I mean, because I think biology is complex. Uh, and also, you know, these receptors, they, you know, the 2A receptors, for example, is not only expressed in the brain, right, but it's also expressed in very high concentration in blood cells. Mm. So uh, even though you're targeting just one receptor, you are targeting that receptor in different places. Um, so the idea is that a dirty drug um, might, uh, through a action on a combination of receptors or targets, might be able to activate uh, you know, some function, but also uh, be more moderate in terms of the other uh, side effects. Uh, so I think there's a lot of potential in there that's unexplored. In terms of ketamine and, uh, and, and psilocybin, so I think psilocybin is pretty clear that it has multiple action. Ketamine also, I mean, ketamine is an NDA receptor antagonist, but it's a pretty weak one. It, it's actually not as high affinity as some of the many of the other NNDA receptor antagonists. And now I think other people are also studying its action on other receptors, like the, for example, the OPR receptors. Um, and then also some of our work also showed that even if you just activate the NMDA receptor, it can also activate those receptors in different cell type that then uh, also lead to some kind of a, a circuit or conversion effect that is uh, not as specific, right? That is also, if you will, a kind of this dirty drug idea where it has a, has a more complex effect. Um, Again, I think that's possibly why ketamine is in some ways unique uh, because of the, this, this kind of uh, this dirtiness or this polypharmacology, not polypharmacology, but th this dirtiness. You know, why, why some of the other NMDA receptors uh, antagonists could not you know, reproduce some of ketamine's antidepressant effect? Why, why that search has not been successful so far? Again, it has this particular pharmacodynamics and also this particular multiple action on the different elements of the circuit that, that makes it unique. Have you done any experiments comparable to what we just looked at for, for the plasticity in the dendrites with ketamine? Does it also have this effect on spine formation? Yeah, so that's, that's where my lab's research actually started. So we only uh, started looking in psychedelics maybe about two years ago. Uh, before that, uh, we were actually quite interested in ketamine. Um, uh, so we uh, probably started about eight years ago or so, maybe. 
I think when I joined the Department of Psychiatry in Yale, um, again here, uh, you know, the 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 antidepressant effect was discovered, so there was a lot of interest. Um, I'm going back now a little bit, but we, how we started was, you know, we before then I wasn't even aware of drugs and I wasn't very interested in it. <laughs> but once I got into the department again, because of so much activity, both clinical and basic science, and knowing some of these drugs have these interesting psychoactive properties and also beneficial action, we got interested in it. Um, so the first thing we started was actually ketamine and we apply some of these very similar in vivo dendritic imaging methods. Um, and there we have done more work in terms of both looking at the structure uh, of the dendritic spine as well as some of the function and biochemical signaling there. So in terms of structure, yeah, ketamine seems to also do same similar things. So we have another study that was earlier before the Simon work where we look at turnover dendritic spine and we see that ketamine also seems to have similar things in terms of uh, promoting the increase in the dendritic spines in the mouse's brain. Interesting. So can you remind us to what the difference is that we know about so far in the time course of the antidepressant effects of ketamine versus psilocybin? So my understanding is psilocybin has somewhat lasting effects, it appears, in humans at least. I'm not sure about animals. Ketamine seems to have this almost immediate effect within hours. And it lasts, I think you said previously for about a week. So is there clear evidence that the psilocybin effect lasts longer than ketamine? Are we seeing that in animals? What, what do we know about that? Yeah, so those time scales, I would say are from the uh, clinical studies, right? The beneficial mm -hmm. effects in human. Uh, in a mouse, yeah, I'm not actually sure. So in our first study, we did not actually look that far. Uh, so we have looked at about, I think, two weeks later. Mm -hmm. um, this is actually a very common question. So I've been already been asked this maybe two to three times. How does the ketamine compare to psilocybin in terms of the dendritic spine turnover? Mm -hmm. uh, we should really do that and also look like a month out and then see what ketamine does. I think there's a lot of interest in that. And even for psilocybin, uh, you know, initially we were even not even going to look for a month out, uh, but it was actually the post Doc Ling Xiao, who did the study, who was like, oh, I still have these mice. Maybe I should go and look at them again. She was the one who really, oh, yeah, well, let's go see and if they're still there. Um, so I think, yeah, it, it, we should definitely do some follow-up study to you know, really chart that time course even more uh, precisely. So what are, the, what are some of the uh, research questions your group is asking right now? Yeah, so my lab, we're, um, we're I think, interested in the basic action of these drugs. Uh, you know, I think our angle is that we're not clinicians, so we're not gonna study humans and the drugs action in human. Um, we're also not chemists, so we're not gonna identify different new compounds, but we are at the end, I would say, you know, neuroscientists and also to some degree bioengineers. Uh, so we're very, I'm very interested in just the fundamental actions of these drugs on different neurons and the neural circuit. And then for that purpose, I think, Psilocybin is an excellent drug to start in terms of, again, of its relevance. Um, so right now in the lab, we're very interested in uh, the mechanisms of how it actually causes these dendritic plasticity. And to search for that, what we're doing right now is we're trying to do different kinds of measurements uh, in terms of how psilocybin affects things like calcium signalings in the dendrites. So some of the um, second messenger within the dendrite, uh, the dynamics that could then lead to the eventual plasticity, some of the earliest steps. 
We're also very interested in the different cell types. So in this study, looking at the turnover spine, we look at one cell type, which is the pyramid of the excitatory neurons, the one that we saw. But presumably, um, uh, and it's known that other cell types also have serotonin receptors. So we also want to look at some of the other cell types and see what they, how they respond to psilocybin. Um, and obviously, the hope is that you know by knowing about how uh, this one drug, psilocybin, act on different parts of the of the cortical neural circuit, uh, yeah, we can develop a more coherent picture on what the drugs do and manifest the behavioral effects. And then from there, maybe provide some insight to find other drugs that have similar kind of systems-wide effect on mm -hmm. the neural circuits. Is anyone yeah. doing functional imaging in awake mice for psilocybin or anything like that? Uh, you mean the kind of like the the kind of study that we're doing related, or uh, well, where the mouse, mouse is actually awake and you're doing um, functional imaging of neural circuit dynamics, for example? Uh, I see. So uh, yeah, we're doing some of it. I mean, uh, so the the spine imaging uh, study, the structural study we just talked about was when the mouse was anesthetized, but many of the other studies we talk about in terms of uh, recording spiking activity from mother cell types or looking at calcium signaling, those are all done in awake mice. So there what we do, um, yeah, is, 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 is to do the mouse when they're, when they're awake and uh, in the, with, the, with a similar kind of microscopy technique. There are, I think, a few other groups that's also doing very similar kind of study. Uh, I think, again, that the topic is emerging and it's getting uh, very exciting. So I think more and more labs are getting interested in it. Mm -hmm. It sounded like you got interested in ketamine because you were in a department where it was studied. So it was uh, a very entrenched in that department and you were right next to some of the experts in the field. What actually got you interested in psilocybin and psychedelics? Yeah, so I don't have a very interesting origin story in here. I have thought about it, <laughs> whether there was any chance. I think uh, uh, I thought about, yeah, what happened is I think, you know, I, I, I grew up uh, and was raised in Hong Kong. Uh, so there it was just very strict drug law, I think just consistent with most of Asia. So I, the only time I would read about drug is like in a newspaper, maybe the police would confiscate drugs. And the notion is like many of the drugs are very dangerous. And, and then the, 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 the flip side of that is I just don't know anything about drugs because there's no, no, no information about it. Um, and that's kind of persists for a long time. And I, and I was trained as an engineer. So I have an engineering degree as an undergrad and also a applied physics degree as a PhD. Uh, and I was building microscopes and that was what I was doing that would have application for neuroscience. Um, so again, the, the interest in drug really started when I joined the department uh, at Yale and realized that it's actually a very fascinating topic. Um, and I feel like you know, drugs are fairly defined subject, right? They, they have a particular chemical structure. They are what they are. You know what you're studying. <laughs> um, so, uh, yeah. And then in terms of psychedelics, yeah, that happened about two years ago. At that moment, at that juncture of my research, I think we, we did already a fair amount of work in ketamine. And we were just very interested to know whether some of the findings that we have in ketamine would generalize to other compounds. And psychedelics have uh, also very intriguing behavioral effects and in, in some ways also comparable um, beneficial actions. So, um, so that's how we got started in it. How difficult is it to actually do this research with psilocybin? Is it cumbersome to actually get all of the approvals to work with a scheduled substance like this? Uh, it, talks about, it takes about 
uh, half a year, I think, to get the. So I mean, one one good thing is you have a year to get the license and and some of the approval at the university um, to have the proper uh, approval to do it. Uh, I think one of the it is easier than human research, right? So mm-hmm. we, we're working with animals, so the, there's a lot you know less uh, liability and other issue. Uh, and then we were also fortunate uh, to be able to partner with Uzona Institute. So Uzona is the nonprofit that's trying to seek to uh, test psilocybin for a different disorder, particularly depression. So they were, uh, I, I was able to um, be part of their drug supply uh, program that provide investigator for research purposes, a supply of psilocybin, uh, which is what allows us to perform this study. Interesting. And so you did your PhD in the United States, did you get your earlier education in China? I, uh, yeah, so I, I grew up in Hong Kong and then uh, my family immigrated to Canada. So I did my undergraduate studies in Canada in Simon Fraser University. Um, yeah, so I was, uh, I was an engineering physics major there. Uh, in fact, I never wanted to do biology. <laughs> so I, I didn't take any biology class in, in university. Um, and then, but you know, life, life, changes right it's it, it, it you know it, the, the path changes over time so did you just get into the neuroscience stuff because you were working on microscopes that were being used by neuroscientists pretty much yeah in graduate school i built microscopes so as i mentioned the lab that i was working in uh was the first to develop these two photon microscopes uh i obviously came after that so i was not part of that early cohort but we were still very much into developing different kinds of microscopy techniques and these type of microscope, the main application is neuroscience. It's particularly useful for imaging tissue that has scattering. And mm-hmm. the brain is one that scatters a lot of light. It's very dense. Um, and then by the end of my PhD, I was, I was collaborating with other neuroscientists. I was like, I, I kind of sick of working on other people's projects. I don't want to just build a microscope and look at other people's projects. So I want to have my own project and actually do some neuroscience work. So then for postdoc and after that, I, I kind of turned into a bona fide neuroscientist and went to do neuroscience research. Hmm. So what do you think some of the biggest questions in the field generally are in terms of psychedelics or other drugs and how they're affecting the brain with respect to antidepressant effects? Um, I think there are a lot of big questions. We've talked about a few. I think one that, for example, a lot of people are interested in would be whether these effects can be dissociated, like mm-hmm. the astrogenic effect with the behavioral effects. Um, I think it's also quite fascinating, again, the variety of psychedelic compounds and the different, the slight kind of subtle and nuances in the behavioral effect that they exert in humans. Uh, again, for me personally, going back again, I think I'm just at the core of basic scientists. I, I feel there's a big opportunity to understand what these compounds do on um, on just brain cells and neural circuits at a basic level. Yeah, again, I think um, if I can understand uh, what do they do to dendrites to induce these plasticity, do they increase calcium, decrease calcium? Is that even essential? Um, what are some of the other signaling pathways? Uh, and then, yeah, in terms of the cell types, uh, they act on excitatory neurons, but what about inner neurons? And what is the totality of that effect? I think that kind of fundamental understanding and what on what the drugs do to neurocircuits, this is kind of at the systems neuroscience level, that would be very satisfying to me. And 
Are there, there's certainly a lot more clinical research on psilocybin and psychedelics going on right now than there were 10 years ago or even five years ago. There's a lot of new startups going into that space and actually doing clinical research. Is there also been a large increase in the amount of basic research happening in the last few years? I think there's some, definitely. I think it comes with the awareness, uh, just the popular media on these compounds uh, you know, becoming decriminalized in different areas and also the press uh, with it going through different kinds of clinical trials with very positive outcomes. So the interest in academia for basic research is also increasing. I think one of the difficult part here, and a lot of people have noted this, is the lack of funding to pursue some of these research. Um, in particular, I think, uh, you know, most of the, in academia, most of the uh, support that we used to do these research come from the federal agencies like the National Institutes of Health. And traditionally, it was not easy to get funding, I think, to study psychedelics. Although I think things are changing, but still it's, it's slow in coming. Mm-hmm. Um, and then, then there's an interesting, I think, tension now with a lot of companies, as you mentioned, like venture capitals and other startup that see the profit and um, promise in this area. And they also want to actually then do a lot of industry-sponsored research. So I think as an academic, that's, there is a bit of a tug of war there, right? Like, cause I, I will want to do some of the basic science and be kind of not attached and, uh, and, and pursue my own question. But then there's this big pool on the other side of sponsored research to do other things. Um, so that's what I think in terms of, so I think there's a lot of interest, but interest come from different sources. Mm-hmm. Well, Alex, I don't want to take too much more of your time. Are there any final thoughts on your research or this general topic that you want to leave listeners with? I think the final thought is, uh, I hope I convey the excitement, I think, in this area. Again, as a basic scientist, basic neuroscientist, uh, there's a lot of cutting edge tools now, uh, for example, the optical imaging that I talked about, but other techniques like optogenetics and um, clear brain, like anatomy mapping. Uh, Neuroscience has come a long way. But on the other hand, the study of psychedelics has been stunted, I think, and delayed, again, because of some regulation, but or other factors. Uh, so there's a, just a big opportunity in terms of applying some of these uh, bleeding edge tools to understand what these compounds, what these drugs do, um, which I think is just is, is fascinating and could have a, a lot of translational value. So I encourage, yeah, neuroscientists, you know, if you're interested to to, to get into this field, it's, it's, um, it, it has been exciting for us and, you know, we look forward to doing more of it as well. All right, Alex Kwan, thank you for your time. Thank you.